The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. One of the things I failed to mention during our announcement time, I just want to call your attention to, is an insert that's in the bulletin for our summer studies. We had our summer studies smackdown spectacular last week where everyone promoted the summer studies that they're going to be offering. Wanted to draw your attention to it, encourage you to sign up and be a part of one of those studies this summer. Also just wanted to give you a little heads up on Pastor Dan's study. Uh, It says that it's going to be on Tuesday mornings and it is going to actually be on Thursday mornings. So just a heads up, not Tuesday mornings for the evangelism study. It will actually be on Thursday mornings. So just heads up on that. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to open to that. If you need a Bible, you'll find one on the back table. Please, if you're visiting, you don't have one, grab one. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, We'd love for you to have that. You're going to need it today. Pay attention to what we're, what we're talking about this morning. So this man was clearly unhappy with the direction the church leadership was taking. Why were they allowing these songs to be sung on a Sunday morning? So he grabbed his pen and began to write. My first issue with the song, it's too new. Second, it's worldly, even blasphemous. This new Christian music is not as pleasant as the more traditional style. And because there are so many new songs, you can't learn them all. This new music creates disturbances that are causing people to act indecently and disorderly. Letters like this one are not uncommon for church music leaders, especially in 1723, and you're the guy, Isaac Watts, who was criticized for writing a song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Letters like this highlight our tendency to resist change, and let's maybe bring it to the here and now, I'm going to ask you all to do something for me. And I want you to pay attention to what happens when I ask you to do something for me. I'm going to ask you to change where you're sitting. Okay? If you are elderly, or have physical limitations, or have a little baby in a car seat, you're exempt from this illustration, okay? But what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to move in the next minute or two at least 15 feet away from where you are sitting right now. Go for it. I love it. I love it.
All right, go ahead and get situated. So what, what went on for you when I asked you to change seats? Some of you may have asked the question, this is strange because now I, look, I have my go-to people that I look at and they're not there anymore. Where's Ron Young? I need to look at Ron Young. I don't know. Where, okay, he's over there. All right, great. Um, what went on for you? Were you thinking in your mind, is, is he serious? I mean, is this, he's just probably just giving an illustration. No, he's serious. We're going to actually have to move. Some of you might have been thinking, what an inconvenience. I wish he would have said something before I got comfortable. I got all my stuff situated. I got my stuff on the ground. I got my stuff in front of me. I wish he would have said something beforehand. Parking lot, someone was going to head out and say, I'm out, I'm done. But we get stuck. We get stuck in our ways, in our routines, in our ruts to the point that we can become change resistant. And the things that were once easy and open for us to accept become harder and harder for us to deal with. So what are some of the things that maybe contributed to your change resistance just now? Maybe familiarity or predictability. This is where I always sit. Maybe comfort or safety. I like to be near an exit door or I like to see who's in front of me and I don't want to see who's behind me. Or maybe preferences, the light is better here, or the fan blows on me, it feels cool, or the music's not as loud here. Or maybe it's time, this seat gets me in and out quickly. But one of the things that's interesting about this auditorium specifically is this section right here, because it's dark. Light, dark. I don't know if you've noticed that, but some of us, I'm not picking on you, but I am. Some of us sitting in this middle section like this dark middle section because no one will see me. No one will try and shake my hand because they can't see me. I can't see Ron Young anymore. Isaac Newton says, everything continues in a state of rest until it is compelled to change by forces that are impressed upon it. That's the first law of motion. Everything stays in a state of rest until something compels it to move or change. And the role that light plays in making change is significant in fostering change. We live in Wisconsin, and we are living currently in Wisconsin in May. Have you noticed the role that light has played in making change in your life? We become new people. Getting up in the morning is so much easier. Our outlook on life is fresher. We're more optimistic. We're more alive, it feels like. And the passage that we're going to look at in Matthew is intended to be just like May in Wisconsin on a Sunday morning, Matthew wants to motivate and enliven God's people, specifically the Jews, to the dawning of a king and a kingdom. The light is now shining, and it's something they've been anticipating for centuries. So as we begin our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we're starting in Matthew 4 to set the stage for the words that Jesus is about to preach. The curtain is rising. 
the darkness is dissipating. The dawn is breaking and change, lasting change is in the air. So let's read together Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Let's pray. Father, your light has dawned. The kingdom is at hand. And we are grateful to be here sitting under your teaching, under your word. We pray, Father, and acknowledge that we are people who are resistant to change. It's hard for us. Would you do a work of change in our hearts by shining your kingdom light in the dark places of our lives? Shine brightly, Lord, so that we might leave this place today changed people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' first words preached in Matthew are this. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ's kingdom light is here. And he's calling us to change. What is Christ calling us to change when he says, repent? Well, this passage identifies three primary categories of things 
that we might consider repenting of and changing. The first is our location. The second is our nets, exchanging our nets. And finally, he's calling us to break our silence. First, Christ's kingdom light is here. We need to change locations, just like you did about five minutes ago. And he says, repent. When you hear that word, it's a Greek word, metanoia-o. Repent. What do you think of when you hear the word repent? Automatically, what comes to mind? Changing our mind and sin. I think when we hear the word repent, oftentimes we think of it synonymous with sin. That I need to just leave this sin that I'm participating in. It is that, yes. But it is so much more. Repentance is so much more. Repentance is an invitation to turn and experience a whole new way to be human. It's a complete change of thinking, of heart, of living, of being. And Christ's kingdom light has to shine on us in order for us to move toward repentance. And when it does, it prompts us to move closer and closer to the light. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That expression, at hand, this is not a future expression. It is one that has arrived and begun. It's as if Jesus' hand is extended at hand, and he's inviting those who are hearing his words to come and participate. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So where would God's appointed king begin his kingdom campaign? Well, for the Jews reading this, they might initially think, well, it would make sense that he would start in Jerusalem. Would start where there's a temple, where there's always already a church proper, established, that's where he would start his kingdom campaign, right? No. John marks a withdrawal. John the Baptist is arrested in Judea, in the place where the kingdom campaign probably should have begun. And John is arrested. And it says, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. And when you see that word withdraw or withdrew, Matthew's not saying Jesus is now hiding away in Galilee. He's actually indicating there's now a shift going on. Judea, they're not accepting the gospel, the kingdom. Galilee, they are. Why Galilee? Why go to a place like Galilee? Because in Galilee, they are open to change. Let me just explain a little bit about Galilee. Galilee means circle, and it is a place that is filled with lots and lots of nationalities because it has been conquered so many times. Galilee has been taken over and over and over again. And so you have a group of cities and people that are open to change because change is just what they experience all the time. And so they are open to change, and they've experienced it. 
And there's Galilee of the Gentiles. There's people from all kinds of people groups in this area that are open to new ideas and new change. The other thing about Galilee that's interesting to note is it's a fertile place. It is a fertile ground because it's located right on the Sea of Galilee. There's a quote, an ancient quote that says, it's easier to raise a thousand olives in Galilee than one child in Judea. This is a fertile ground. This is a place where things grow and happen. But the other reality that we see in this passage in the prophet Isaiah is there are people here that are sitting in darkness and dwelling in death. And so Jesus leaves his hometown of Nazareth, a place that's going to be later known for its resistance to change as they boot Jesus out when he preaches the gospel. He's going to leave Nazareth, his familiar hometown, and his known, and he is going to make a location change. He gets up from this middle section seat, and he moves out to another place that's open to his gospel. And we, we won't be able to see that we are in the dark or others are in the dark until we also make a location change. It's only when the light begins to shine can we see where we are and we can see where everyone else is. He's calling us to a location change, to go to Galilee of the Gentiles. Last year, a movie came out called Room, and it was nominated for Best Picture. I think uh, someone won Best Actress in this movie. And Room tells the story of a young woman who was held hostage for seven years by a man in the space of a 10-foot by 10-foot room. And it was filmed in a 10 by 10 room. And during her time in the room, she becomes pregnant by the man. And the movie opens with her five-year-old son describing the only world he's ever known, this 10 by 10 space. He refers to the world as room. Eventually, he and his mother experience freedom from their hostage situation. And the boy asks that he and his mother go back to say goodbye to room. And as they're walking around this little shed, he looks disappointed as he's touring what's left of his world. And he says to his mom, it's because door is open. His mom says, what? And he says, it can't really be room if door is open. He experienced a change because the light finally came in to this dark place. How does Christ's kingdom light affect us and cause us to change our location? Are we living in a room? Are we sitting in darkness? And is Christ light coming and encouraging us and inviting us Move out of this dark place. Move out of this dark place. Let the light shine in this dark place. 
And what happens when the light begins to shine in our dark places? It's like bacteria that get a glimpse of UV cells. When they get UV rays shining on them, guess what happens to bacteria? They start to die and their DNA gets disrupted so they can't function properly. When light shines on bacteria, bacteria can't function properly. I remember when I toured in college with a performing group and we would travel on a coach bus throughout the summer months. And there were 40 of us, 40 teenagers traveling on a coach bus through the summer months. You can imagine what it starts to smell like on a coach bus through the months, 40 of us. And so what would happen oftentimes is we would get off the bus and go do our performance or go out to eat and we'd get back on the bus and all of us to a person be like, oh, 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 it just reeks in here. Oh, it stinks in here. But while we were traveling on the bus beforehand, we had no idea until we got out, until we got out into the bright light and into the fresh air. Where are we living right now that God is calling us to open the door and asking us to allow his kingdom light to penetrate? Maybe it's an internal place in your private world where he's asking you to open the door and allow his light to shine. And in leaving that place, you'll never be the same. When you go back, it won't look the same. He's not only calling us out of those places, he's calling us to take the light that we have found into dark places. He's calling us to Galilee of the Gentiles. Christians, he's calling us to a place where we will be the minority He's calling us to a place where we will probably be rejected or persecuted. He's calling us to a place where there's instability and lots of opposing views. But he's calling us to a place where we are to be light in the darkness. Let's not stay in the middle section, huddled together as safe Christians until Christ returns. Let's head out beyond the Jordan to the places and the people who are living in the rooms of their sin and their doubt and their suffering. And let's go and let's open their doors and shine Christ's light into their rooms. Let's go do that. And let's encourage them and encourage each other. Don't go back into our dark places. It's better out here for the kingdom of heaven is shining in dark places. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's go. Not only do we make a location change out of our darkness and into the Galilee of the Gentiles, we also have to exchange our nets. Verses 18 to 22 give us a picture of this. When you see Jesus calling upon the first four followers of him, his inner circle, if you will. And there's always, I always had a misunderstanding about this passage. I don't know if you had the same misunderstanding. But it was almost like you'd read this passage and it was like a scene from a sci-fi movie. You know, where Jesus would walk up to a complete stranger and say, John, follow me. And John would be doing his fishing thing. He'd look up and he'd be in some kind of robotic spell. Yes, Jesus, 
I will follow you. That's, that's kind of how I always saw that passage. But thankfully, we have other gospels that give us clarity to know that they know who Jesus is. The Gospel of John says there's encounters that these guys are having with Jesus. They're hearing his preaching. They're hearing him say, repent. He's probably eaten their fish that they've caught, and they're familiar with him. So this isn't a strange sci-fi scene. This is a relationship that's already been established. And the details that Matthew specifically mentions is that these guys... They know fishing. They know how to fish. There's some fishermen in this room. I'm not a fisherman, but I can respect and appreciate fishermen. And here's what I've noticed in general about fishermen. First, they're very patient people. They can just wait. They can sit on a boat for hours and wait for one fish. Another thing is they're very courageous people. They get up at like 3 in the morning when they should sleep in on a Saturday or Sunday. They get up early, early in the morning. They know timing. They know when to fish and when not to fish. They know that their role as fishermen is not to be seen by the fish. They remain somewhat hidden and discreet. And they also know bait. They know what catches fish. And those fishermen that Matthew mentions... He's saying, I specifically am calling fishermen these qualities. And he says to them, he extends a hand and he says, guys, kingdom at hand, let's go. And Matthew's lead repenters are men who exchange in the safety nets of their job as fishermen and follow Jesus. They're asked to still use their skills as fishermen but the objectives are different. They're still asked to be patient. They're going to keep casting, and they may not get converts or catches all the time. They're still courageous. They're going where the fish are, and that's risky. They know patience. They know when to listen and when to speak. They're humble in their hiddenness. They don't want to be seen, but they want God to be seen. And the most important thing about fishers of men is that their lives become the bait. Their lives are the bait. They are shining Christ's light into a dark world. And guess what's happening to a dark world? They're attracted to that light. As we study the Sermon on the Mount this summer, I'm excited because it gives us an opportunity to become the bait as we live according to the Sermon on the Mount, guess what's going to happen to our light? It's going to get brighter. Pastor Dan is going to take a few weeks on sabbatical to study evangelism and how our church might do evangelism better. But guess what? We, at the same time, get to be studying the Sermon on the Mount and learn how to do evangelism better. And so the disciples, they leave their nets they leave the security of their job. They leave the security of their families. And it's going to cost them their lives. But Christ has offered them a security like none other. This had to be hard to let go of what was familiar to them. To exchange their identity as fishermen for an identity as peoplemen. Repentance 
involves a vocation change. Not maybe a change of what you're doing, but the purpose to which you're doing it. Vocation, that word means a call, a calling. And your calling means there's somebody actually calling you. There's a caller. And what is he asking you to do with the time and the gifts you've been given? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everyone needs to go out and change their jobs. But changing why and how we do our jobs is important. Because you've been given certain skills in your job that can now apply to kingdom work. So we need to exchange our safety nets. Maybe it's pension. Maybe it's job security. Maybe it's getting, landing that partnership or getting tenure. Whatever safety nets we've put into place, we need to hear the voice of the king asking, it's time to go. Let's go. What are our safety nets? Well, it might be helpful as we're asking that question, what are our safety nets, to think of the concept of time. And it's something that we as a culture value so heavily, time. We want a lot of time. We want our time. We're busy because we don't have any time. Time is something we value. And the question I want to ask as we're thinking about our safety nets is, friends, when does the kingdom of heaven start and when does it end? When does the kingdom of heaven start? It has started. Christ began his earthly ministry. Kingdom of heaven started. When does it end? There is no end. It never ends. So when we're identifying our safety nets, a question we might ask is, is the net I'm hanging on to temporary or eternal? And some temporary safety nets, I just want to identify some for you, if it may be helpful, might include man's opinion of you, temporary, your popularity or your status, temporary, your physical strength, temporary, your mental acuity, temporary, your children, temporary, your homes, interest rates, your physical health, our national security, our perfect track record, all temporary. And he's asking us to exchange those temporary nets for eternal nets. What are we holding on to? And what are we casting out into the world? The promises of God that are found throughout the gospel. Those are our new nets that we're hanging on to. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I will give you rest. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I will supply all your needs, says the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you. Those are our new nets that we're hanging on to and that we're casting out into a world. And not only are there nets, they're life preservers. These promises of God are lasting. They're secure. They're unchanging. And Christ's kingdom light holds out a hand and says, let go of your safety nets, hang on to these promises, and let's go. Where your treasure is, there your net will be also. And the first disciples immediately left their nets because they believed his promises to be unchanging, to be eternal, and to be secure. Christ, is, his light is exposing our temporary safety nets and leading us to a new place. 
getting rid of her old nets and hanging on to his promises. But how? How are we supposed to accomplish this objective in following him? Lastly, Christ's kingdom light is here and he's calling each one of us to break our silence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is not only a location change, not only a vocation change, it's a communication change. The disciples are following Jesus, but what is Jesus doing? What are they following him doing? He's not just meandering around Galilee aimlessly. What is he doing? He's preaching and proclaiming the gospel. These are not boring sermons where you're just checking your watch. He's speaking with bold certainty as one who has authority to an ignorant people. He's offering people in darkness something to stand upon. That's what we're here to do, too. What else is he doing? He's teaching where there's openness to learn. Not boring lectures where you're waiting for the bell to ring. He's explaining things that for years have been misunderstood or unclear. So to the confused people, he's offering something that makes sense. That's what we're called to do. And he's also bringing life-altering healing. These aren't topical treatments that provide just some temporary relief. No, he's bringing lasting pain relief to conditions that were incurable. So to the hopeless, he's offering the most powerful change agent himself. That's what we're called to do. Jesus used words and actions, show and tell. He was showing the gospel as much as he was telling the gospel, and he was doing it with his authority. How does Christ's kingdom light help those of us who have a hard time opening our mouths and proclaiming and teaching and bringing Christ to people? How does his kingdom light help us who are timid in sharing and proclaiming the gospel? First, we need to remember the words and the actions. Our show and tell is not us that we're showing. Our words and our actions are his. And when we remember that, we'll do less apologizing for what we have to say. Because what we have to say is not our own words. They're his words. Friends, we are not ultimately the light of the world. He is. Think about Sarah Groves. She has a song and it's called, You Are the Sun. And it says, You are the sun. I am the moon. I have no light of my own. Still, you've made me to shine. The light we are in the world is his light. So we don't have to apologize for that. It's not us. It's him. And secondly, we can open our mouths and break our silence because it's not our authority that we're bringing. It's his authority. So we can be more dependent upon him for what to say. His spirit can be our power. His word can be our script. And his love can be our motivation. Friends, we can find such freedom when evangelism is not riding on us. It is completely dependent on him. I love that. I can do that. We have a Bullfrogs event coming up on June 8th. 
We call it a stepping stone event because we want people to experience the light that comes from the kingdom. And registration's been open for a week. And so far, everyone who's attending is a Jacob Swellian. Let's change locations. Let's invite a Galilee, a Gentile from Galilee. That's what I'm trying to say. Let's invite a Gentile from Galilee to come and join us. Let's not worry about converting them or offending them with our invitation. Let's just depend on God's promises to take care of that process. And when we're prompted by God's spirit and not our own guilt for being a bad evangelist, let's proclaim his words and his love to these folks we've invited. Next week, we dive into the Sermon on the Mount. And you thought changing seats was difficult? Get ready for the Sermon on the Mount. There are so many hard things in the Sermon on the Mount. And several ways people misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount that I just want to identify as we're preparing our minds and hearts for what we're about to study. Some people see the Sermon on the Mount as social revolution. The golden rule's there. Love people as you ought to be loved and the world will change. That's all we need is the Sermon on the Mount. They see it as social revolution without a Savior. Some people look at the Sermon on the Mount and see the high standards and go, all I see in the Sermon on the Mount is my need for grace. My need for grace. I do not measure up. I do not measure up. And some people look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, doesn't apply to us. It's for a much later time when God's kingdom is fully realized. That's when it's for. Those are all misunderstandings. And what I want to propose this summer as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount is this. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount has the potential to change the world as long as Christ is the leader of the revolution. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount will confront us with our sin and our need for grace but that doesn't mean we don't continue to strive for obedience and following him perfectly. Yes, this sermon is a picture of the kingdom of heaven, but this kingdom of heaven has begun and it is at hand because this sermon is Jesus. And Jesus, our king, is here in us so that we might brighten a world groping around in the dark. Jesus, who embraced every beatitude from humility to mercy to purity. Jesus, who brings salt and light to a thirsty and dark world. Jesus, who fulfilled the law to an I and a T. Jesus, who received the punishment of God's anger and wrath. Jesus, who proclaimed the word of God with authority, causing a watching Galilee world to be astonished at what he had to say. Jesus, who not only extended his hand, but extends his hands and his feet to be stretched out on a cross in order to win a people for himself. Jesus, who took the darkness of our sin upon himself so that we could become children of light. That's why we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, to brighten this room and to brighten this world. Isaac Watts, the revolutionary hymn writer from the beginning of the sermon, he didn't allow change resistance to keep him from writing these lyrics. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died 
for man, the creature's sin. At the cross where I first saw the light, it was there by faith I received my sight. Repent for his kingdom and his light, friends, is at hand. Let's go. Let's pray. Change us, oh God. We are change-resistant people. Shine your light on us, oh God, so that this sermon we hear this summer becomes the sermon we preach with our lives. Move us, God, by leading us out of our dark places so that we can brighten other people's dark places with your light. Lead us, God, by exchanging our safety nets for new nets of gospel purpose. Use us, God, by breaking our silence, opening our mouths to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous life and light. We pray this in Jesus, our King's name. And everybody said, amen.